God is on earth is no longer a geographical location as it used to be. It's rather now a company of people. That's changed because of new covenant. So do you remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at, at, at the well there of Samaria in John chapter 4? I think it's around verse 23. He, he was speaking of the temple in Samaria and the true temple that was also in Jerusalem. And at that time, he, he's looking at her and he said that the day is coming, in fact, now is when those who worship God, you will no longer worship him in this mountain or in that mountain, but you will worship him in spirit and truth. Now, he said that there is a day coming when the worship of God will not be conducted in a geographical location. It will be conducted basically in another dimension. That's the understanding, which will be the Holy Spirit. And that's the key. We have come, <coughs> excuse me, we have come to live in that. The church today lives in, now remember 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 16 it says that Paul said to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And, and remember, the word temple there, if we're to translate it, it literally, translated literally from the Greek, is holy of holies. So then it, it would simply read, do you not know that you are the holy of holies of God? You, you people in Corinth, that, that's who you are. You're the holy of holies of God. And then, and then you come to Ephesians chapter 2. And, 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 and take a look at that. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That's a mouthful. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, remember this part. Okay, you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together and growing is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Again, temple, holy of holies. So right through the end of that chapter, really, it is the nearest thing I mean, honestly, in, in the epistles that discuss the new Jerusalem, if you would read the rest of the way through that, it says that we are, again, the temple of God. The word temple, in the Greek, holy of holies, we are that. And I, I, need, I need us to see this because it says that you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, again, being the chief cornerstone, it says being built together by the Holy Spirit, you have become the habitation of God. That's just exactly what that's saying. I mean, that this company of people that we're referring to, the new is is the habitation of God on earth. Do, do you remember that that? that very neat little book 
it's a little, it's, it's the prophecy, I should say, uh, among very difficult prophecies in the book of Zechariah. I think in the book of Zechariah is the most difficult is the most difficult book of all of the Old Testament as far as prophecy goes. But in chapter 14 and the 20 and 21st verse, it's it's speaking of the day concerning Jerusalem. Take a look at it. It says, "In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord." And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judea will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. You love on that one, right? But here's the thing. It says that all the horses, start there, on their bells is written, what? Holiness unto the Lord. And all the cooking pots in Jerusalem will be holy unto the Lord. What's that say? That's, that's the key. Well, of course, holiness unto the Lord was an inscription that was only ever written on what is called the mitre of, of a high priest, okay? And, and, and now says the prophet Zechariah, the day is coming when not only in the temple and with one man would there be holiness unto the Lord, but actually right down to the horses that are trotting around Jerusalem. That is, in all the busy and scurrying of the business of the day, in the kitchens with the cooking pots, it says holiness unto the Lord. He was saying the temple will no longer be on Temple Hill. The temple is going to overspill, and the whole of Jerusalem will become the temple. In, in, in your business, in other words, horses, in, in your kitchen, your, your cooking pots, wherever you are, whatever you doing, you will be in the temple. It's, it's that kind of inclusion, if you can see where he's going with this. That was the clearest Old Testament prophecy concerning the new Jerusalem. It says, the day is coming, the church, when you will no longer have to go to a geographical location to find God. When, when you are traveling, of course, there, there's no more horses that we travel with. It's Delta Airlines now. But it's the same idea. What about 30, 39,000 feet uh, in the air in a Delta jet? I am there in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is no longer, again, a, a location on earth. It is a location in the Holy Spirit, the new Jerusalem, the perfect cube in the Spirit. I, I highly suggest that sometime you read Isaiah chapter 4 as well. Isaiah chapter 4 speaks of, of similar things. It says that over all the houses of Jerusalem shall be a pillar of fire and cloud. It says it, it shall be a covering of fire. That is that the glory of God that was in the Holy of Holies shall now be upon 
the peoples of Jerusalem. It's no longer a location. That's that's the point. It shall spread to the ends of the earth in in another dimension. We are the holy of holies, and there we live. We we've returned to Eden, if I can put it that way, because that's what we were made for. Uh, for, for I mean, we were born for this. Man is is only half alive when he's not in the glory of God. Have you noticed in chapter 22 and and verse 3 and 4, it says there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be where? On their foreheads. (laughs) We could spend... A, a number of hours just on those two verses if we deal with you. But notice what it's saying. No more curse. That is, sin and iniquity have been put away, and the curse that has been put on sin is gone. It says that they shall see God face to face. They shall know him. Face to face is is the idea of knowing intimately. Personally, it says that they shall be healed in their foreheads. Now, we've already discussed that at length. That is the, I mean, that this is the indication of belonging to. That's the idea behind it. We belong to. In other words, we, we with the seal on our head, we belong. We are the possession of God. I mean, I hope the bells are going off in, in your head when I say those things. I mean, think about it for a second. Your sins and your iniquities I shall remember no more. I will write my law in your heart and put it in your mind. You shall know me, says the Lord, from the least to the greatest. You shall be my people. I will be your God. What is that? That is the statement of covenant, the new covenant. Do you remember how the old covenant experienced that? Because it was only a shadow. The high priest on the day of atonement went into the Holy of Holies and stood there with the blood of an animal. It was not that sins and iniquities would be remembered no more. I've got this printed for you. They were just covered over. It was not knowing him face to face. They only knew God through the high priest. And remember, he was their mediator. Now we have a new mediator According to Hebrews, come to that holy we've gone over those verses. And, 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 and belonging to him, yeah, but they looked forward to a future. Now, in this holy of holies, there are no more priests, for you know the Lord face to face. What you're seeing is from the shadow to the reality of where we are because of what Christ has done. There is no more covering over for the blood of Jesus has cleansed from all sin. There is no more curse. Christ became the curse of the law, and he bore it away. The law written where? Within us, not on some stones. We are now living in the Holy of Holies, and all the terms of the new covenant have come to pass to perfection. You guys okay back there? I'm in the Bible. Holy of Holies. 
so we're living in the Holy of Holies, and, and all the terms of the new covenant have come to pass. That's the idea, to perfection. And remember, the veil is rent. The way into the holiness, Holy of Holies is, is now open, and, and we've become this. There is no more need of a day of atonement. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying as we begin to progress through here? He goes on to say in these chapters that there, there, there is no temple there. In verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Well, I mean, you gotta, that follows. I mean, if, if, if we have become the holy of holies, there's no more temple. Us together are the temple. And, 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 and as soon as we come together, the Spirit of God among us, glorifying the Lamb among us, bringing us before the ultimate throne of God, you've got the church. You've got your temple. So what makes a temple? Uh, if there's a building? Well, no, obviously not. I mean, the glory of God makes the temple. Wherever God chooses that his glory shall be, there's your temple. God has chosen that it shall be in the midst of his praising people. We are the temple. Whenever we gather together, be it two or three or 2,000 or 3,000, when we gather together, the holy people, the holy city would gather. And, and there, there is then the, the temple. There, there may be no walls. I mean, there may be no fine grapes, no cushy pews that you get to sit on and, and relax or, or even heat in, in the building. There, be, there may be nothing but, you know, trees and, and grass and, and bugs as far as that's concerned. Uh, but but uh, again, all that matters because it's it's the people who make the temple. There is no temple in the city, for the city is the temple, for the glory of God is there. Now I want you to notice something that almost clinches what we're saying here. In verse 23, it says, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp pierced and, and its lamp pierced the lamb. I mean, if if you look at that, you'll see that there are three items of illumination that are mentioned here. There is the sun and the moon, there's a lamp, and there is the glory of God. They are all mentioned in that one verse. It says that the, the city doesn't need the light of the sun or the moon. And it also says as far as lamps go, the lamp, the lamb is the lamp. When it's all said and done, the glory of God shines in it. Now, again, this is another place I hope that there are some bells going off in your head. What item on this earth was lit by sun, moon, lamp, and glory? It was the tabernacle. The outer court of the tabernacle was lit by the sun and moon. I mean, it was 
totally open to the sky. And, and the holy place was lit by a lamp of the seven-branch candlestick, if you remember that fact. The holy of holies was lit by the glory of God. We call it the Shekinah glory. And, 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 and as a result of, of this, the holy of holies never needed the sun and moon. The holy of holies never needed a lamp. It had the glory of God for its light. But that isn't the clearest statement in Revelation to tell me that the new Jerusalem is none other than the holy of holies. No sun, no moon, no lamp, the glory of God. The lamb is the lamp. Uh, follow what I'm saying. Incidentally, the glorious company of people under the terminology, symbolic, new Jerusalem, uh, it's, <laughs> remember the cube aspect, it has very high walls. Uh, I hope you notice that in, in chapter 21 it tells us 1,500 feet high. That's high. Have you ever thought how high 1,500 feet actually is? I mean, you go around and see your cell towers, and they're about 100, 200 feet up in, in the air. Walls speak of two things, really. They are really the same. You're, you're talking about separation and safety. Now, honestly, I could probably <laughs> live in downtown Brooklyn in New York if I had walls that were 1,500 feet high. Because, I mean, you got safety there. People are not going to climb over any wall that's 1,500 feet high. Also, I don't, I don't think it would, well, you know, if, if I put up walls at home that were 1,500 feet, the neighbors would probably have a problem with that as well. It's called separation. That's the idea. Walls of safety and separation. All through this book, you have had a, a, a reoccurring theme, a theme that the church, I think, really needs to hear today and maybe more than ever, but that is that the devil cannot get inside the church and do harm. He goes so far into the church that really isn't the church. But when it's all, when it's all said and done, he cannot touch the heart of the matter, which is the company of people worshiping God in the Holy of Holies. We've talked about this. I think if you just had the slightest memory of what we went over as far as this course is concerned, you would remember that part. But remember uh, that the glorious woman in Revelation 12, when the devil tried to get her, she's given what? Wings of an eagle and taken into the wilderness. When, when he spews out water after her, the earth absorbs it. He can't touch the woman. You remember that part? I mean, I mean do you remember, for example, in chapter 11, he was given a measuring rod to measure off the Holy of Holies. Can't touch that. That's the whole point. The, the, the rest that, that looks like the church, yeah, but it isn't. That part's been given to the Gentiles. And, and they, they can trample all over it, trash it, turn it into whatever, call it what it is, whatever, have their own theologies, their doctrines and everything else, and let the world come in and have their bingo parties and do what they want. But the church cannot be touched. The church, the church cannot be touched. It has been measured off. If you remember that part. I, I mean, you, you will get this all the way through the, the book of Revelation. 
144,000. That's just really another picture of it. Uh, Remember, it says that just before all that stuff was released, it said, stop, exclamation point. Seal the servants of God on their foreheads. They can't be touched. Do, Do you remember when the beast was was, you know, going off crazy, raging, and and giving the mark of the beast. It says, and then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000. Remember that? Untouched, always. That's the whole thing. That's the whole idea. High walls, same idea. The satanic trinity can't get through these walls. You do understand when I say satanic trinity, You've, you've got the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That's what I'm referring to. The Garden of Eden, remember that place? If you do, you're very smart. But the Garden of Eden didn't have any walls. Serpents could get in there. Snakes do damage to innocent little ladies standing in front of trees. Okay? Won't go there. But snakes can't get over walls that are 1,500 feet high. That's the idea. You're safe. Or, or to put it maybe more in a, a more straightforward language, in 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 first well in First Peter chapter one and verse five, I'm going to be rattling off a lot of verses that aren't actually in your notes. So as I give them to you, you might want to write them down because I'm just going to go over them and paraphrase them. But like like with First Peter uh, one five, I don't know if I ha- I don't think I have it here, but you are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation is what it says. You are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. You're kept. That's the idea. That's in the passive tense there, by the way. You don't keep yourself. You are being kept by the power of God. So as as maybe like like 1 John 5 and verse 18 puts it, that because of our faith in Christ, we have come to that rest in him. It says, and the wicked one touches him not. He comes close. I'll give him that. But he, he cannot touch. And when you take a look at this, the symbolism is very plain. The high walls keep us. We don't struggle. We, we rest in the fact that any power that would come against us must, first of all, come up against the power of God. And the greatest power on earth or in hell, when it comes up against the power of God, comes up against omnipotence, and, and it, can, it can't make any headway. God has himself, pers- has made himself, literally, personally responsible to keep us. Careful with that. That's a tremendous thought. I don't have to have men on the walls of this city, you know, looking over me. God has made himself personally responsible to keep us. So you have the reoccurring idea, a shepherd, for example, all the way through the Bible. A shepherd, especially when you get back there in the east, made himself responsible to do what? Keep his flock. If one of them was attacked by a lion, then the shepherd would die before he would let the lion get away with it because his, because his shepherd is a person who is personally responsible 
for looking after the sheep. Jesus is the greatest shepherd who is personally responsible for keeping his church. The glorious, holy of, of holies cannot be fouled up by, by Satan. Jesus keeps us. And, and, of course, the walls separate us. Sometimes, you know what? You, you will have a satanic attack. And, and then, then, then at that point, what you've got is, is, is the great beast coming after. Other times, you have a little lamb that bleats like a dragon. Now, he doesn't attack the walls. He kind of slides up and, and as we talked, gives an alternative. He has what I call the alternative, a hamburger sandwich in McDonald's Burger kind of gives it a smell and I, I hate going and driving down the road going by Burger King every day you know when they got that flame broiled stuff going up in the air it don't smell like burgers it smells like steak and you get hungry then you have if you remember back the whore the great harlot who is calling for the peace of Jesus yeah he's got various attacks that's the key if the walls are walls for, of safety, that, that's great. But also, they are walls of separation. That's the idea. There is no danger for those who are in Christ. We watch and we pray. But when it's all said and done, he does the keeping. And we do not drift out and suddenly find ourselves outside. We don't happen to be walking on the walls, for example, on a morning stroll, and suddenly, poof, fall off. It's, it's not that easy to fall out of God. The walls are walls of separation as well as walls of safety. They're, they're, in other words, there's a grand canyon between the church and the world. That's the point. It says in verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12 foundations. And each one had on it a name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We've read this, but again, the foundation of the church is always stated in the New Testament to be the 12 apostles and their teaching. We are founded on that. We've already quoted Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. There were where it states that we were founded upon the apostles. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. You will find in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9 that Paul, when he's speaking of the building of the church in Corinth, says that he laid that foundation. The, the apostles' teaching is the foundation of the church. What was that teaching then? It is the teaching that we are always speaking of. Paul states that the only foundation he could lay was that which is in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose on the third day. That's the foundation in all the terms of the new covenant as they are outlined in the New Testament epistles. That's important. Very important. The church 
is not founded on some mystical experience. It is founded on straightforward teaching. Some of you may not even be bothered with that. It, it might be that obvious to you, but for the sake of those whom it's not so obvious to, think about this. I mean, have you ever read, for example, have you ever run into a person who says, I know I'm a Christian because, you see, I woke up in the middle of the night and there was this light that was hanging over my wardrobe. I just know God came. I, ju I just know it. And I'm like, my friend, you got a problem, okay? Now, I don't doubt. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that God didn't come to you. God came to the as a great light to, to Saul of Tarsus, but I'm, I'm quite aware that he could do the same today, and maybe, maybe he has. But you'd better hurry up and get to the foundation of the whole thing. The foundation of the city was not mystical experiences. It was the teaching of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And, and it's, it's not enough to say, oh, I just, I feel good. Therefore, I'm saved. Really? Okay. Please hear me. Especially with all the other religions from Hare Krishna to Jehovah Witness. I hope you realize what I'm trying to say. You can enter into any religion in the world and have some mystical experience. Christianity is not a mystical experience. It is founded in solid historical fact. It can be talked about. It can be discussed. It is logical. Therefore, the scripture says, by the renewing of your mind. So be careful of people who are not founded on the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They might have an experience, and they might talk you know, glibly about meeting with God, but you had better define that God. You had better define. And as, as, as he, the, 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 the one who has become flesh, lived among us as the lamb, I mean, is, is he the lamb that has been slain? That, that's what I've got to ask them. Is, is he the lamb who sits on the throne with his father? Or is it just some mystic? No. Let's be sure we're not meeting with uh, that little lamb that talks like the dragon. Hello? It's out there now. It, it, what we're talking about is that which is built on a foundation. This is not some floating city, even though it, you know, like it, it comes down from heaven. It's built upon a foundation, a solid foundation. When we talk about the foundation, when I talk about the apostles, it, it began with Peter when he said, remember this, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I will build my church on that foundation. That's the rock, not Peter, okay? Peter wasn't the rock. I, I mean, it, it, it was what he said. It's a play on words, if I can put it that way. Because the word Peter, in the Greek, Cephas, means little chip of rock, a little chip. It's that sort of thing that falls on your car when you're going down the road. Uh, you know, the truck comes along and out comes and, and likes to decorate your windshield kind of thing. 
Uh, I've had that happen as I say it. But Jesus said, upon this rock. He used a different word there. The word there is something like the mountain itself. The, the, the great rock, the enormous mountain. That's what the word means. So he's saying, here is a, a little chip of rock, Peter. And out of that little chip of rock has come a great mountain. The mountain is, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, on that foundation, not upon Peter, but upon the, that foundation of what he had just spoken. What is the foundation of the church? That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the rock upon which the church is built. The rock on which the church is built is a statement concerning the person, Jesus Christ. Then, then Peter, John, and James pick up the, the very same theme and teach us that the one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he died, was buried, and was raised again, and his blood cleanses from all sin. This is the foundation. Not, not everybody's in the city. The gates are wide open, but everybody isn't in it. You've got to be careful. You've got to understand that. You, you can have, uh, I, I've seen it, I've after so many years, I've, 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 many I've seen it with. Uh, they have this love that I call slush. It's a slushy love. You, you, you just you say, God bless everybody. God, God loves you. you know, and I'm like, <laughs> God says there is a foundation, and you don't come into that city unless you are coming in on that foundation. My fellowship is is with all God's people. But there is a foundation. There are, are some things on which we might not agree on. That's okay. But there has got to be a foundation. I cannot fellowship with a man as a brother who does not come in on that foundation. The person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and, and now resting the, the resting that takes place of me upon that work of Christ. That is the foundation. That, that's, that's, that's the whole point. It also says that the city had gates. In chapter 21, verse 21, uh, let, me, let me turn to that real quick with you. I want to go ahead and read that. It, it says, beginning... Start with verse 19. Yes, sir. 21. I've got too many 21s going around here. That's my problem. Uh, 21. Look at verse 21 there. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. 
it says the 12 gates, right? The 12 gates. Incidentally, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to go into this anymore. We've gone into it enough times. But do you see there, for example, in that verse, 12, 12, 12? It's all 12s. And you know what that's all about. We've already covered that. It says, with the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. Then go back to verse 12, and it says, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And that's the gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So I hope we got the picture at this point. There are 12 gates into this city, and 12 speaks for itself. Again, symbolism here. But we know two things about the gates. One, it says they are pearls. Each gate with a solid pearl. Secondly, it says that written on them was one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, what does that mean? How can a man enter into the Holy of Holies? That's, that's the whole problem. I, I want to get in through the gates. How can a man enter into the Holy of Holies? How can a sinful man ever stand in the glory of God? David considered that when the Holy of Holies was out on Mount Zion and he wrote Psalm 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted his tongue to deceit. And, and on and on and on he goes. It's the perfect man. Only the sinless can enter the sinless presence. So how can I get into the Holy of Holies? It says through the gates of pearl. That's how you'll get in. You, you know, uh, if you've ever studied pearls, you know that it's the, it's the strangest of all the precious stones. Every other precious stone is made by, by pressure and, and heat. And, and how's a pearl made? It's made by blood and suffering. That's how it's made. Sand gets into the shell of the oyster. And there is this secretion that's caused by the excruciating pain of that little bit of sand and a little bit of stuff that's gotten inside of there. And in, in the blood, gradually then, a pearl is formed. And to get to the pearl, the creature has to die. And then you've got your pearl. Follow me? It's a precious stone. It, it's, it's beautiful to see, really. And, and again, I tell you that only the Christian can understand that the cross of Jesus, with all its blood and suffering, is the most beautiful thing the Christian has ever set his eyes upon. It's the pearl of great price. It's, it's, it's beautiful in its form. It's magnificent in its blood and sweat. Jesus said, if you'll remember, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, 
I am the way. No man comes to the Father except by me. It only follows that we have read that the only people inside that city are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, they, they all have life. But they got it through the Lamb. The Lamb, as it had been slain, or, or this other picture of Jesus, the pearl, which is the, the, the gate into the city. Now, notice, if you want to get to the throne of God, which is inside the city, if you want to get into the glory of God, which is inside the city, you have to go by the gate. That makes sense. But then I've just got done saying that Jesus is the gate and in his death and, and resurrection. But then I've just gotten through saying before that that we are the city. Now, follow me. We are the city. But I've just read that 12 of the gates are pearl. That's Jesus. So how does a person get into the glory of God? Through a gate. The gate is Jesus, but the gate is part of us, for we are the city. We have said that the city is a symbol of the church. And part of the city is the gate. Therefore, the gate is, all at once, it's a picture of Jesus and a part of the church. Do you realize that the only way people will ever come to God is not only through the cross, but through us presenting the cross? So that it, it, it states at the end of this book, in the last chapter, the spirit of the bride says, there's a man, and he is crying out for salvation. Crying out for salvation, right? His name is Cornelius. Heaven is open, and an angel comes down, and the angel says to Cornelius, I don't know what to say to you, but there is a man up the road who does. Call for Simon, whose name is Peter, and he will give you the words of life. That, to me, is incredibly significant. The only way into the city is through the city walls. The only way to become part of the city is to go in through the city. And the only way people will ever hear of the news of the pearl is by those who have received the pearl and speak it. Our mouths become the doorway into the kingdom of God. It says that each gate had the name of a tribe of Israel. You remember that when we were studying in chapter 7 that we established that we are the Israel of God. Now, it, it says that all around the city, there is a name of Israel. So here is the gathering of true Israel, the ultimate holy of holies. Do you remember when the glory of God was in the tabernacle in, in the wilderness and all of Israel encamped around it. Twelve tribes, okay? Twelve tribes camped around the glory of God. It's very significant. The order was significant, so forth and so on. I, I think that is the picture here. Here is the glory of God in the city 
And all around it is, is pitched the true Israel of God. So you have 12 gates, each tribe, and each a part of the true Israel. It states in chapter 21, verse 18 and, and, and 21, uh, uh, that the city is full of gold. Full of gold. You may remember from the book of Exodus, I, I don't know, but that, that study that we did years ago, we took time to show that gold in the Bible always speaks of a divine nature. The, the, the city, which is the church, is filled with a divine nature. The church is a company that not only is filled with God's light, like 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 the jasper, but it's also filled with his light, his very divine nature. We are not only a people united to God's illumination, we are united to God in his light. Now, I say that because, you know, we've heard the trek of, of the golden streets and the golden this, and we miss the fact, we, we look at something as, as literal, but we don't understand the symbolism behind it. And what gold really represents. Look, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, it, it's, it's by the promises of God that we are made partakers of divine nature. That's the whole point. That's the picture. There is gold in us. Oh, yes, I'm looking at people that got gold. In, I'm not talking about your teeth either. God has put in us his own light, even as he has put in us his own light. In, in, in 1 John chapter 3, it says that God has given to us his very light because his seed abides in him. The, the word that is used there, again, in the Greek, I've shared it, I don't know how many times, is the word sperma. And, and it's where we get our word sperm from. God has given us his very light, his very sperm. You, you, you can't get more direct than that. It says that God has placed his light inside of us. We are not just people who have made a decision and decided to join a church. We are those to whom has come his light and his light, and we live, but Christ lives in us. We can do all things through Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is God which works in you. The very divine nature was given to us. We never become God, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I mean, again, we never become God. We are always we are ever the receivers and the expression. But never never misunderstand that, that you know, the, the very simple fact that we are, and at the same time, we are those who partake of divine nature. Now, in, in verse 9 of chapter 21, it states, The foundation stones of the city wall are adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone is jasper. 
I'm, 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 now, if, if you take a look at that in, in verse 19 there, I'm going to be honest with you. I am not going to read all those because <laughs> I can't pronounce most of them. So I can pronounce some of them, but there's some of those stones I, I can't. But, but here, here's, here's the thing. There are 12, 12 stones, 12 of them, 12 precious stones. So, you, uh, you know, if you could stand away and look at those stones, I mean, imagine that you could go through the 12 colors and just imagine, if you would, uh, those colors on top of each other. It would be like looking at a rainbow called bands of glory. The church reflects the rainbow. Do you remember the rainbow with Noah? The mercy of God. That's what you can, you just take a quick look at the church and what you see is the mercy of God. That's the radiance of the rainbow. But there is, is more there than that. Do you remember the high priest back in Exodus 28? He had a breastplate. Do you remember the stones on that breastplate? How many there were? Twelve. Twelve stones. He carried Israel on his heart in the form of twelve shining, precious stones. Now I find in the New Testament twelve stones. I see this new Jerusalem not only coming down out of heaven, but actually the breastplate of God himself. We are carried on the heart of the king who cannot die, whose name is Melchizedek. We are carried into the presence of the Father. We are born in the love of God. God put it like that in the Old Testament that each tribe of Israel would be a precious stone because he was telling them that they were a special treasure. He could have had 12 pieces of mud as far as that goes, but, I mean, it, it represents something. That's the point. He, he made them 12 precious stones because he was saying, you are peculiarly precious to me. You are my treasure, and I bear you on my heart. You are ever, ever in my presence, ever. The church, it, its its very foundation as is that we are a part of the breastplate of Melchizedek, the high priest. We are his peculiar treasure because the fact that he never dies, he holds us everlastingly in the presence of the glory of God. Do you realize that it says in John 17 and verse 22 that we share the same glory that Jesus had with the Father before the foundation of the world? We are held in the glorious presence, radiating the glory that we share with God. If we didn't know that was in the Bible, it would almost sound like another religion, honestly, because all we have been told is, God bless you, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, but that is only the beginning of the introduction to the preface of the first volume, really. That is what it's all about. Our sins were forgiven for what? In order that we might realize the mercy of God. He has placed us upon the breastplate of the high priest and that we are born into his presence and we shall share 
his glory by grace. He who is glory in, in essence shares with us who have glory by grace. So we ever live in his presence. In verse 24, it tells us the nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring glory into it. Incidentally, this was put out of the picture, the idea that this is only something in the future. I, this, this mixes it right there. It tells me two things here. Number one, it says there are loads of other nations that are out there. Now, to people who see this as something only in the future, I just ask this question then, who are those nations? I have, I have no idea. But if I see this as already begun now in the church, well, of course. It says the nations walk into the light of this. I, I have, have many times before had people question me concerning Israel the Jews, they, they bring up the question, for example, that whoever blesses Israel will be blessed and whoever curses Israel will be cursed. And unfortunately, I always enter into a disagreement over that. That was true. Whoever blessed Israel under the old covenant would be blessed. God promised that to Abraham. Whoever cursed Israel would be cursed. But that's no longer true of those people over there on the Mediterranean. Now, the light of God is not centered into a nation. It is centered in the church. Hello. Therefore, nations, if you want to be enlightened, keep close to the church. The nations walk in the light of the church. That's that, This whole book, if, if we've got the swing of what's been said throughout this book, you have noticed the way that the nations that the way that nations treat the church results in the way that God treats the nations. I mean, rewind the Old Testament. The way they treated Israel is the way that God treated those nations. But that isn't true anymore. You you can spend <laughs> you can send all the soybeans you want to Israel, and the only thing you're going to walk away with is money. Israel, by blood has nothing. It's Israel by the blood of the Lamb that has something. That's the Israel of God. And it says that nations walk in the light of that Israel. That Israel, the new Jerusalem, the true church, the heavenly Jerusalem, the nations walk in its light. Any country that gives place to the church of Jesus Christ's and listens to its message, that country will be blessed. They walk in the light of it. Any country that persecutes the church of Jesus Christ will fall sooner or later. God will make sure of that. That's the message of this book. Now, now think about it. It says that all nations walk in its light, but it goes on to say, the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. So there are peoples, notice that the, the kings of the earth, in old Israel, you had to be in Israel by blood and have Israeli blood in your veins. Not this one. It says kings of the earth. That means all nations, kings of all nations, 
shall come and bring their glory into it. And those who come surrendering, sort of like the queen of Sheba that came to Solomon, she brought her glory to lay it down before Solomon. So here we have the kings of the earth, the, the nations of the earth, and they bring their glory. They are coming, if you like, with their hands in the air in surrender. For every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. This is a city that is filled with people, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. It is in Israel, it is in Israel of all, all, all peoples. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 says concerning the ultimate Mount Zion, which is what we're talking about, all nations, if you remember this part, flows or flow into it. Galatians chapter 3 says, now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free, all are what? One in Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 3, there is a mystery that has been hidden from prophets in generations past. It is now made plain and revealed that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow partakers of the same pro promise along with Israel. This is the new Jerusalem all together in Christ. Okay, take a look at um, verse, or chapter 22 here, verses 1 through 5. Uh, I want to read the whole thing. I was only to give this part, but he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I hope that rings a bell for you. So if you're going to do some research, there's a simple one right there. In, in the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no light there. They need no lamp nor light of, sun, of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, the first verse of chapter 22 describes basically beautiful gardens, that the city is a garden. It has the river of the water of life in it and, and the tree of trees of life, which are for the healing of the nations. The Bible begins with a garden, and the Bible ends with a garden. This is the eternal Eden. This is the garden of God. All through the Bible, whenever it speaks of peace, total satisfaction, it always speaks in terms of gardens. For example, he maketh me to lie down beside still waters. He leads me in what? Green pastures. Obviously, we're talking symbolic here. But it conjures up everything I need. Here is peace and satisfaction. Do, 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 do you remember those prophecies and, and in Ezekiel where it states that when the Messiah came, it says that the sheep will be able to sleep in the forest and no one will harm them. Back to the gardens and the trees again. The whole idea of peace and joy, the river of life, really? I mean, do we really need an interpretation of that one? I mean, if we just take a look at John chapter 7, verse 37, 
we have that hanging there in our Bibles, the river of life. I mean, out of the innermost being shall flow what? Rivers of living water. The river of life is, is ever the Holy Spirit. It's running through the center of this new Jerusalem. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, the river of life. Ezekiel 48, prophesying of the church. You remember it says that out from under the temple there would come a river and wherever it went, life, life, life. And, and where there was death, life came. Do you remember that? And, 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 and where there was, uh, do you remember how that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? The disciples sat down in that very temple that Ezekiel was talking about, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Out through the gates of that very temple came the river of life, and it began to flow and flow and rise and rise. And wherever the gospel went, it was life. The tree of life, the tree of life is none other than Jesus. It says, you eat of the leaves of the tree and you will be healed. Do I really need to explain that one? He said, I am the bread of life. We eat of Jesus. He is the bread that came down from heaven. In him is our continual sustenance. In him is our continual wholeness and, and healing. He is to us the tree of life and the bread of life. It says that in that city, in the center of that city, is the throne of God and of the Lamb. In, in chapter 22, in verse 3, it says, The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. The church is the center of God's rule upon earth. Now, we've already seen in chapter 20 that, that 1,000 years symbol, and it says they lived and they reigned with Christ. The reign of God on earth is through the church. The reign of God on earth is through the church. Go, go back again to Matthew 28 where it says, All authority is given to me. You go, therefore. That is, my rule that I am exercising from the throne shall be through you, the church. That's when it comes to prayer. Hello? Do you remember in Psalm 2, which is in my book, The Greatest Psalm of the Prophecy, in prayer, when Messiah has conquered everything and sat down on the heavenly Mount Zion, which is the Holy of Holies, the next thing was, now ask of me, and I will give you the ends of the earth for your possession. It's yours. The church is the asking end of the Messiah. He sat upon the throne. We sat on the throne in him and asked in his name. So the role of God is established on earth. Or as the, the classic prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who prays that? The church does. So the throne of God and the Lamb is centered in the church and God's will be done on earth because the church brings it to pass in prayer and through faith. There you have your new Jerusalem. Remember this was written to persecuted Christians. When you were being persecuted and when the church is being split and, and torn into pieces, when the world, it just seems like, you know, it's trampled all over the outer court, 
and you are shaking your head and saying, my goodness, where do we go from here? The architect comes along and says, see the original plan. Take a look at it. Blessed is he, in other words, who reads this book and who hears it. Whether, whether you are being attacked by political power, apostate religion, by the sweet, sweet smell of the world and her scent, or whether you're being disrupted by the false prophet. Take a look at the original plan. God says things are not what they seem to be. Just because there's a bulldozer over there and a couple holes over here, drill grid, you know, sticking up over, you, you say this is the new Jerusalem? God says yes. When you see it as God sees it, you're going to soar over all the despair of this world. And you will rest in God. And you will be blessed as this book promised, which means supremely joyful. When does all that take place? Well, I, I hope you see that we uh, consistently through this book, and we've stated it, it takes place between the first coming and the end of the world in the glorifying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All through that book, you get one expression. Behold, I come quickly. That's how the book ends. Now, we didn't get there, but that's how it ends. People, people have a problem. Quick, quick. Can't, I want you to get this perspective, and I'm going to be ending on this, but I think you'll really get it. I mean, and, and the, the word quickly. The book is founded upon one fact. Jesus Christ is victor. He has conquered. It's done. Everything is sealed and signed. It's over. I'll say it again. It's over. And once everything is done for which all time has been moving up to that, from eternal counsel, it has been moving up to that, and, and, and now it's done. Anything after that would be soon. Uh, I hope you see what I mean. That, that soon. S-O-O-N. No, it's soon. Don't, I'm preaching. Don't you guys. What I'm saying here is these, the, the only way to make sense of that, um, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, God saying to John, hey, John, I might come next week. Maybe not. I don't know. But, you know, it's just. That wasn't the point. The point is, this is going to work out. And it's going to continue to work out through the generations of men. But the grand finale in comparison to all we have waited for is soon. Let me give you an example. You bought the house, okay? You signed for it. I know you haven't moved in it yet. But do you remember all the time you took deciding where you were going to move? And then all the time you took when you decided where to move looking for the house? Once you signed it, anything after that is soon. Do, do you get what I mean? So soon is ambiguous. And, and it means to be ambiguous. Anyone that sets the time and begins to talk about the end will come. How many times have you heard 
the prediction that the world was going to end on such and such a date. Books have been written. Things have been sold. Merchandise. They got rich off of that. You wouldn't believe the thousands of Christians in this area that really believed that it was going to end on such and such a day. God didn't say he would come on such and such a day. He said soon. In the light of the finished work of Jesus, it is soon. The rest, it's, it's none of our business, to be honest with you. It's just soon. And so every generation lives caught between the two. I, I look back and, 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 and I know, I know it's done. I know that whatever is happening right now, it's going to be wrapped up soon. If you can live there, glorious tension, I'll agree. I know it's, it's done. And whatever is happening now doesn't faze me in the least. I know he's coming soon. And there you live in the blessed, inviolable joy that comes through the book of Revelation. Say it, amen. Lord, thank you for your word, leading, guiding. Thank you for the traveling journey you have given us through this time. Thank you for showing us things on one side or another. I pray that your hand continue to touch and that we continue to grow in this word, to be led by your word to understand who we really are in you. Who you really are in us. That union that exists and what makes up that union and the understanding so that we can look at this world and face this world. And this world, well, in all honesty, has no victory over us. There's a wall of safety and separation. Lord, bless them, I pray. Continue to stir them up and encourage them. Guide them and direct them. Bless them. Strengthen them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This Sunday, I haven't asked Cindy yet, but I'm going to ask Cindy now.